them up and read to us the section that we're looking at in James. This would be James chapter 5 and verses 12 through 20. Chapter 5, verses 12 through 20. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. The Lord will, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Well, let's pray here before we look into this section. Father, we ask for your help now. We ask for your Holy Spirit to speak to each of our hearts. We pray, Father, that we would not be just hearers of your words, but doers. We ask for your Holy Spirit in our hearts today, that we could walk out of here and uh, be people who are seeking to please you in our thoughts and actions and words. Be with us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, I think this will be the last time we look through this book of James, as far as this series anyway. And uh, I think it's the 17th time that I've spoken on this. I'm not sure about my numbering, but uh, I think that's the case. If you remember back to the first message, <laughs> a long time ago, uh, this is actually taking longer than I thought, but I said that one commentator said that uh, the book was severely practical, and I thought that was a pretty good summation of how to, how this book reads, severely practical. Um, I also read just recently that out of 108 verses in this in this book, 60 of them are ethical imperatives. So 60 out of 108. 
And really that's what most people think about when they think about this book. It's a book all dealing with the, the walk of the Christian, the works of the Christian. And uh, that's true, but I've also tried to point out that the real subject of this book is authentic faith. We shouldn't think just, well, this is a book about works. It's, it's a book about how faith works. It's what authentic faith is and does. So the purpose was to encourage those who were suffering trials and persecutions, these uh, Jewish Christians who had, who had been dispersed because of persecution out in different areas, to encourage them uh, as they were suffering different trials and persecutions to bear up under these things patiently, looking to Christ, and to warn them against giving into error in the area of doctrine or practice. So we're talking about what it means to have authentic faith. And I thought maybe as kind of a way of reviewing what we've looked at, uh, I, I would just go through and remind you of some of the things that James says are involved in authentic faith. But before I do that, I want to do something for the children, because if I'm going to talk about authentic faith here and go through the book, I want you to understand what we're talking about. <laughs> authentic, that's kind of a big word. Authentic faith. What do, you, what do you think that word authentic means? If you're talking about authentic faith. What would you say? Faith, right. But what kind of faith? See, it's authentic faith. That's a big word, isn't it? All right. I thought I should probably try to deal with that a little bit. Anyone else want to try? There's a kind of a simple word. That's the word I was looking for. Real. Authentic faith is real faith. And um, I thought maybe just as a way of illustrating this, I have a... A picture here. Some people maybe have been watching the World Series here lately. So I have a baseball picture. This is a guy. This is a picture of a pitcher. And he is, this was a famous pitcher a number of years ago. A guy named Nolan Ryan. Okay. He still holds the record for the most strikeouts of anyone that's ever been a major league baseball player. Uh, so it was a good, real good picture. So the picture has a signature on it here. It has his autograph on it. You know, sometimes famous people, if you have their autograph, it's worth some money, you know. So this picture has his signature on it. But I could have written that signature on there, right? And they said, now, now I've got a picture with Nolan Ryan's signature on but but it wouldn't be real. It wouldn't be authentic, would it? So... Along with the picture, I have this paper that says that it's authentic. This is an organization that um, specializes in telling people that Signatures are authentic. So you got this stamp down here. You got the guy's signature. It's a uh, statement of authenticity. There's another big word, authenticity. That just means it's authentic. So this 
this witnesses to the reality of this. Now, now follow me here, kids. This witnesses to the reality of this signature on here, saying this is authentic. So that makes it worth, worth more. But that doesn't make this signature any more real, does it? It's still the real signature, but this authenticates it. This says that it's real. And that's what, that's what our works do in the Christian life. The way we behave authenticates that God is real in our life. You might put it this way. When you, when you become a Christian, God writes his name, Christ writes his name on your heart, right? That's one of the things that happens. He writes his word, his truth on your heart. But people can't see that. How do they know if it's real? Well, they know if it's real if they have a witness to that, which is the things we do. If it's real on our hearts, it'll come out in our lives, right? And so our works are like this statement of authenticity. That that, you know, I can, anybody can say they're a Christian. Anybody can say, well, God's worked in my heart. But has he really worked in your heart? Well, the way that people can know that is by how we live, what we do. Okay. Hopefully, hopefully that was a little helpful. Anyway, authentic means real. So real faith, what does real faith look like? What does it live like? What does it do? All right, now here's what I'm trying to do. I'm just going to go through the book of James and point out at least some of the things that he said were involved in authentic faith. I'm not going to give you the verses. I'm just going to uh, remind you of these things. First of all, how does authentic faith react to trials? Authentic faith will see the beneficial aspects of trials, realizing that testing develops steadfastness, which will ultimately make us perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Authentic faith will look to God for wisdom and understanding in trials. Authentic faith will let even the poor Christian glory in his high position as a child of God and will help the rich person realize that worldly possessions will soon mean nothing. They were just talking about authentic faith here, you see. Authentic faith will realize that the person that perseveres under trials is blessed because he will receive the crown of life. Authentic faith will recognize that trials are sent by God for our good, but our temptations arise from our own wrong desires. Authentic faith will remember that God bestows every good thing and every perfect gift and he never changes. Authentic faith will remember God is the one who initiates our salvation. He brought about our spiritual rebirth through his word of truth. Authentic faith will be quick to hear what God tells us, slow to speak its own mind, and especially slow to react in anger. Authentic faith will desire to put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, and in humility receive the word of God which is able to save our souls. If you have authentic faith, you'll want to put aside filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and look to Christ. Humility. 
in uh, receiving God's Word. Authentic faith will desire to be a doer of the Word and not merely a hearer. Authentic faith will look intently at the perfect law of liberty and seek to be an effectual doer of it, not a forgetful hearer. Authentic faith will bridle the tongue, will seek to help the helpless, and will also keep oneself unstained by the world. Authentic faith will not show personal favoritism or prejudice, especially against the poor who God often makes part of his people. It will not set itself up as a judge of people with evil motives. Authentic faith will seek to fulfill the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Authentic faith will seek to speak and act mercifully as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Authentic faith will not be a dead faith that has no works. It will realize that faith without works is dead. Authentic faith will look to God to tame the untamable tongue. It will not use the tongue to bless God and then turn around and curse people made in the image of God. Authentic faith just can't do that. It will recognize the wrongness of using your tongue that way. Authentic faith will not have selfish ambition or bitter jealousy in the heart, which is a mark of worldly wisdom but will have the wisdom from above, which is pure and peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. Authentic faith will repent, submit to God, resist the devil, and draw near to God. It will cause us to seek to have clean hands and a pure heart. Where there is worldly-mindedness or double-mindedness, it will seek to change. It will, be, it will humble us in the sight, in the presence of the Lord. Humble us in the presence of the Lord. It will keep us from speaking against one another and judging one another. Authentic faith will keep us from presumptuous statements about the future and from boasting with arrogance. Authentic faith will keep us from exploiting others and living a life of luxury. Authentic faith will be patient until the coming of the Lord. Authentic faith will be honest in speech. Authentic faith will pray in all situations, in times of joy and in times of sorrow. In sickness, it will realize that the prayer of faith will raise up the sick person. Authentic faith will be transparent enough to confess sins to one another and pray for one another believing that the effectual prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. And then what we're going to look at today, authentic faith will seek to regain those who have strayed from the truth. So that's just kind of a very brief review of what James says authentic faith is like. So that does bring us then to these last two verses of James. Let me just read these again. 19, 519. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he has turned, that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. 
Now we've pointed out that this last section here, beginning with verse 12, where it says, above all, really applies to the entire final section of the letter. James is pointing out some things of primary importance as he concludes his thoughts to this group of Jewish Christians, Jewish converts to the Christian faith. So, what is above all? Well, he says, first, a Christian speech must be straightforward and honest. Second, a Christian should be a person of prayer in all situations. If he's suffering, he should pray. If things are going well, he should praise God. In sickness, he should call for the elders to pray over him. And we should be praying for one another and confessing our sins to one another. So the last thing, then, that he wants to say, above all, above all, consider this in verse 19. We should be caring enough for one another that if we see someone going astray from the truth, we should seek to bring him back. That's one of his above all things at the end of this book. This is a fitting conclusion to the letter in which James himself taught to do, sought to do this very thing. That's some of what he was doing throughout this whole letter, you see. He was writing to believers who, because of trials and persecutions, were being tempted to deviate from God's truth either in doctrine or behavior. It seems clear from the letter that some of these people James was writing to were not doing very well spiritually. And in several instances, he calls them to turn from their error, to repent, and uh, change their ways. So, authentic faith will not deviate from essential doctrine or live in a way that's clearly, clearly contrary to the character of Christ. And authentic faith will be concerned if another brother or sister begins to wander away from the faith. In other words, and this is kind of the meat of the whole thing, in other words, authentic faith compels us to flee from sin and to help each other to do the same. Personally, we want to flee from sin, we want to stay away from sin, and we want to help one another to do that also. And if we see someone going astray, we should be concerned enough to seek to bring them back. Now, in verse 19, there's an interesting word uh, where he says, strays from the truth. The term stray or wander comes from a Greek word, planeo. I'm not sure if I say it right, but uh, it's a Greek word from which we get the English word planet. And the reason for that was because the ancients who mapped out the night sky saw certain stars who di that didn't fall, follow a regular pattern. Had all these constellations up there, and they stayed the same in the same situation. But there was other stars that were wanderers. They didn't stay in those constellations. Today, today we know that these are the planets of our solar system, and they called them, that, that word, that word planet meant wanderer. So that's what they called them, they were wanderers. These stars seem to be erratic in their behavior. So we get some idea of what James was talking about when he used that word. 
believers who wander either willfully or by the, because of the trickery of false teachers or under the influence of Satan need to be turned back from their wandering, from their erratic behavior. And James is saying that we all have a responsibility to help one another when we see this happening. This is the way he ends his letter, you see. We have a responsibility to one another as believers. If we see someone wandering, we should seek to bring them back to the right path. One writer called this, quote, a ministry of mutual disciplining in the church. Mutual disciplining in the church. The whole church is called to exercise discipline, not just the pastors and elders. I think that's a significant thought. We don't just leave that up to the pastors and elders. It's not what James is saying. He says, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, this is not exclusive to the pastors and elders. Church discipline is the training of the church by the church. Much of what should take place in this area happens in everyday encounters amongst the people of God. Paul called the church to this same thing in Galatians chapter 6. Let's just turn to that real quickly. Uh, Keep your place there in James. Galatians 6. Verses 1 and 2. Brethren, note who it's addressed to, not leaders, not elders. Brethren, if a, if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, that's the criteria if you're walking with God. You don't have to be a leader, but you do have to be walking with God. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. You don't do this in harshness or meanness with a critical attitude. Uh, putting down someone. No, in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. You know, you're trying to pull this person out of that wrong way. Don't get sucked into it yourself, he's saying. Bear one another's burdens and and thus fulfill the law of Christ. So, just another example of what James is saying here. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one, in a spirit of gentleness. So this is uh, really what, what James is talking about, what, what uh, Paul was talking about there in Galatians, is the first step of Matthew 18. Remember what that is? If your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. That's See, church discipline starts on that level, one-to-one amongst believers. And I really believe that most of the situations of a person starting to get off track should be taken care of that way. We just care enough about one another that we, we talk with that person. That should take care of many of the situations that the church, in a church when a fellow... Christian wanders from the truth. Now there's much in these two verses that is very countercultural. 
It, it will go against the grain of our culture. For one thing, the idea of accountability and responsibility, responsibility for one another, goes against our supposed individualism. Just let me do my thing and you do your thing. <clears throat> we don't want other people in our lives and we don't want to be responsible for other people. Live and let live. But the Bible doesn't present that picture. And that's what, I mean, this is so different than what our society would want us to embrace. The Bible presents the picture of a church as a body functioning together. Not little individuals out here. A family working together, brothers and sisters working together. A building made up of stones being fit, to, fit together. So, this will, you have to go against the grain of our society to do this. Another thing that's very much against the way our culture goes is the idea that truth is knowable. It's obvious from what James is saying here that truth is knowable. He, he speaks of people straying from the truth. That means you can know what the truth is and turning them back turning them from error. This whole idea is against the relativism of our culture. But God expects us to live our lives in holiness, which means we can know how we should live and what it means to turn from error. I mean, God's the great absolute. And His character, as presented to us in Christ is our moral and doctrinal standard of reference. We have a clear standard, and that's Christ. What He said, how He lived, what He taught. So we can know the truth. And we can turn people from error. And we can turn from error. But that's, like I say, that's not the way the culture wants to present things. And then... <clears throat> Just the fact that he talks about saving a soul from death, the very idea of sin and punishment, you want to talk about something that doesn't go over in society, that's countercultural, right there. Those two things, sin and punishment, are extremely countercultural. James tells us here that sin can destroy us, it's a life threatening danger that can destroy our souls. And I think it's important to note here that he uses the word soul. So we know he's speaking of more than just physical death. He's speaking about saving a soul from spiritual death, from eternal ruin. If sin is not dealt with, it will ruin us forever. So authentic faith calls us to turn from sin so our souls might be saved from death and love demands that we should seek to call each other to this way of life also. We have to turn and we need to make sure that we're caring about other people in this area too if we see them wandering. One more verse on that. This is not like this is uh, an uncommon theme in the scriptures where this is something of the body life, you see, to do this type of thing that James is talking about. In Thessalonians... Chapter 1. 
verse or uh, chapter. First Thessalonians chapter five, I'm sorry, chapter five, verse fourteen. I urge, we urge you, we urge you, brethren. Now this again, he's speaking to a whole congregation, a whole church. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. See that no one repays another evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. If you're seeking after that which is good for one another, you'll be caring for their soul if you see them starting to wander in some area. And this is, again, I'm just trying to emphasize this is addressed to the whole church. You see, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. Now, if you think about these verses 19 and 20, you realize that they don't fit neatly into some systematic views of theology. Why is that? Well, it's because they seem to say that a believer can be lost. He's talking to believers here. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, and you turn him back, you save his soul from death, you see. I think James intended these final verses to be a warning to all who profess Christ. We need to turn from sin be it doctrinal or moral, so that our souls will be saved from death. That's what he says. As Christians, if we've gone astray from truth, we desperately need to be reestablished in the truth. We should realize that for ourselves. We realize that for one another. All of us, not just leaders, should sense our duty to try to lead an erring brother or sister back to the right path. In fact, you know, what we're talking about here is kind of the first step in doing that. We're not talking about trying to micromanage another person's life. We're certainly not talking about any kind of judgmentalism because James has already spoken clearly against that type of attitude. In 4.11, he says... Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. So don't speak against one another. And then verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. So, we're not talking about any kind of judgmental attitude here. We're not talking about, you know, just nitpicky type things uh, in another person's life. Nor is James speaking about matters of opinion on secondary issues, like what Romans 14 talks about, you know, uh, eating and drinking and observance of certain days. He's not talking about non-essential things here. That's not what James is talking about. But where the great doctrines of the Christian faith or the plain and clear moral standards of Christian conduct are being transgressed, we should care enough to speak to one another. We go by the word of God in this. This is an opinion, you see. In fact, note how he puts it here at the beginning of the letter in chapter 1, verse uh, beginning with 21. 
Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. This is what, we, this is what we're telling one another. Receive the word. If you're a Christian, that word's been implanted. All right, in humility receive that because that will save your souls. And if you don't receive that, your soul's in jeopardy. See, but we're going by the word of God here, not our opinion. We must humbly receive the word. It goes on to say, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks in his natural face in a mirror. So we must humbly receive the word of God. We must exhort one another to do that and to be doers of it, not just hearers. <clears throat> you can tell that James throughout this letter is very much against sham in religion. Sham of any kind. And the thing that he emphasizes over and over again is that a dead faith that produces no works will not save a person. So these moral imperatives are not just take it or leave it. They're matters of life and death, James is saying. <clears throat> what types of behavior, what types of works did James have in mind when he wrote these last two verses? Well, I would say probably the type of things that he's brought out in the letter. Here's some examples. These are just some things that I picked out from the, the uh, letter of James. <clears throat> God's people must not hold their faith with an attitude of personal favoritism or partiality, especially towards those of lesser standing in the eyes of the world. God's people must control their tongue. An unbridled tongue demonstrates a worthless religion. If you see somebody with an unbridled tongue, you should, you should, and they're a professing Christian, you should say something. What's he talking about here with unbridled tongue? Well, uh, we need to be careful about using our tongue to judge others, to speak against fellow believers, to stir up strife and quarrels, which is something that James spoke out clearly against. We need to be careful about using our tongue to speak in anger or with arrogant boasting. We must be very careful about dishonest speech. Our yes should be yes and our no, no. God's people must not be double-minded trying to serve God and live for self. We're talking about things that James emphasized that were probably in his mind as he wrote these last two verses here. You see a double-minded person uh, trying to serve God and live for self, you, you should say something to him. I mean, if it's obvious. God's people must not be worldly-minded trying to serve God and yet be preoccupied with the world because James said clearly friendship with the world is hostility to God. It's not wrong to tell somebody that. James said it. Friendship with the world is hostility. It doesn't mean you don't have some friends that are not Christians. That's not what he's talking about. But he's talking about you embracing that lifestyle. 
God's people must not be selfish. Things like selfish ambition, envy, bitter jealousy, pride, and following after our own lusts are serious sins. James said that lust, has, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is accomplished, brings forth death. Selfishness can also be manifested in our view of money and possessions. James is really big on this. Unjust gain and living a life of wanton pleasure, just total luxury uh, with disregard for other people, is incompatible with the Christian faith, with Christian living. So these are some of the types of things that James would probably consider as areas we need to hold one another accountable in. Now, clearly some of these things uh, that he points out are matters of degree. In other words, uh, it'll take some discernment to know when to speak and when to be quiet. We should not presume to know motives and we need to make sure we've dealt with any log in our own eye before we go to a brother or sister about some sin in their life. Nevertheless, contrary to what Cain said, we are our brother's keeper. Of course, Christ is the real keeper of our souls, but he often uses our words and actions towards one another to keep us on track. He keeps us through one another in the, in the church body. I think James wants to encourage us to seek to turn a straying one back by telling us that we can actually be involved in saving a person's soul from death. Think of that. That's what he says here. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save a soul from death. He's talking to, a, he's talking to Christians here and he's saying you can be involved in saving that person's soul from death. You're not, he's, and again, he's not talking about some lost person here. He's talking about the church functioning as a church. And it can be that we, as we do this, many sins can be covered. The idea of covered here, I think, is he means forgiven. God can and does cover people's sins by treating them as if they had never happened, never been. He removes them from sight through the atoning work of Christ. That's in Psalm 32, 1, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. But what James is bringing out here is that this covering won't take place unless there's an uncovering, a turning to Christ, and a repentance from those things. So he's concluding his whole letter, a letter in which he's done this. He's concluding the letter by encouraging us to do that for one another. 
You might say it this way. He is saying, I have sought to encourage you in your Christian walk, and where necessary I have called you to repentance. Now you do this for one another. That's the way he's concluding his letter. Now you do this for one another. Care for each other's souls as I have cared for yours. That's what James is saying. So, may God grant us grace and discernment as we seek to heed this final exhortation here in the letter and all the things in this letter. It takes grace, it takes the power of God, it takes discernment, the discernment of the Holy Spirit as we seek to be doers of this word and not just not just hearers